We are continuing now in our studies in Oros Hatshuva, Parak Dalet. We started Parak Dalet. Our learning this evening should be the Eloi Nishmas, Pesach Yitzchak, Ben Yosef. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the fourth Parak of Oros Hatshuva is really one of the more difficult prakim um, in the entire Sefer. The poetry of Rav Kook here and the just uh, free-flowing thought and trying to access every word that Rav Kook was writing was all, you know, it was all rooted in, in Kabbalah, was all rooted in, in deep philosophy. And in every word, he's kind of giving us a window into his heart, into his mind. And it's a very difficult limud. It's not a simple limud at all. So we were in Os Aleph last week in Ors Hachuva, um, Parak Dalet, and at the end, Rav Kook started speaking about the, to, to summarize, because I think it's important to get kind of like a, where we were in, in Os Aleph. Rav Kook was basically saying that Shuva is this cosmic uh, force that exists in the world. It exists before the world was created, and the whole world is trying to return to something that was prior to the creation of the world. In other words, Shuva, unlike what we may have grown up thinking, or some teacher, or camp counselor, or parent, or friend, or attempted friend, was trying to tell us that tshuva is you did something naughty, you did something bad, and you therefore need to correct your mistake that you've done. Instead, tshuva has nothing to do with something bad that I've done, but tshuva means returning to a state that was prior to the creation of the world, where Hashem's, where the experience of godly, divine presence didn't need to be cultivated, but was so clear, was so obvious to everybody, that enod milvado kipshuto, that there is only God, not to the exclusion of any other gods, but that there is no God to the exclusion of, there's no any other God except to the exclusion of this table and that water and myself and my own ego, that all I experience is this divine, this divine experience. And so tshuva means returning to a state prior to the creation of the world. And we explained last week that we use this Lashon that Rav Kook is going to speak about further in the Sefer, that the biggest Chilul Hashem that ever was in the history of the world, as it were, was in the moment that Hashem created the world. The moment that Hashem created the world, He hid, He made a vacuum, a void of His presence being in the world. And in doing so, we now are stuck in a world of Olamius, a Lashon of He'elam, a Lashon of hiddenness. And we move from this world where everything is Kulo Elokus, everything is completely godliness, to a world where it's very easy to be distracted and not to experience the divine drama that's going on. And so because we are literally headed towards the infinite, the world is headed towards the infinite, and we spoke last week about how this is such an optimistic view of the world and how Rav Kook even saw the entire uh, unfolding genre of science that was and that is evolution, he saw that as part of this unfolding of an idea that we're moving towards something greater and greater and greater. If a person believes that they came from something lesser and is moving towards something greater, so then if, if one were to seed the point and say, and how that exactly works, we're not getting into that, we didn't get into it last week either, that, that all of the world came from lower life forms to higher life forms, well then that means that we are capable of becoming greater and greater. When one looks backwards and says, oh, we came from, from if that's even a valid form of, of, you know, and again, scientists will leave that for them to debate, but for theologians, if we're looking backwards, then we say, oh, we come from, from this kind of lowly state. But if we're looking forwards, that means that we're constantly progressing. So for of Cook, that means we're literally moving towards the infinite. We're moving towards this infinite expanse, which is towards Hashem, which is so vast 
that sometimes we feel overwhelmed and incapable of describing the next level. And that's what Rav Kook was talking about at the end of Os Aleph. He was talking about the impossibility and the frustration of attempting to express oneself to literally say the words of what exactly it is that we're aiming for. Meaning it's not enough, as Rav Kook said before, to check off the box and say, okay, I'm davening, I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm davening all, all the three davenings every single day. I'm not speaking Lashon Hara, I'm not wasting time, I'm not, I'm doing all the things, I'm checking off all the boxes. But for Rav Kook, tshuva means something even beyond that. It means somehow aiming for an ideal that none of us can quite grasp yet. There's maybe something that we're aiming at, that's level one. But there's a level which is hidden behind that, which is yet to be even uncovered exactly what it is that we're aiming at. So for Rav Kook, this causes a tremendous amount of pain, right? An idealistic person, a person who doesn't care, you know, so they just go about their day and whatever is comfortable and whatever is expedient, that's what they do. But for a person who has an ideal, and for a person who sit, and even more so, a person who senses some ideal beyond what they can actually express, and by the way, this is also frustrating, you're trying to express to the next generation, to your children, or to your students, or to friends who maybe you're trying to express to somebody else what it is that you feel, like Rabbi Nachman wrote in the first piece in Lakuta in, uh, in Sikha Saran, where he said, he quoted the Pasuk from David Amelach, because there's something that I know, I know that Hashem is greater than anything else. Rabbi Nachman says, I know this, but I'm having trouble expressing it to other people. I can't quite give that over to other people. And, and even sometimes there are ideals that I know, like, I know I'm not doing this right. I can't pinpoint some specific thing that I'm doing wrong, but I know that there's, there's, there's greater and greater levels. And sometimes I'll come in the presence of a tzaddik and I'll say, I don't know, this person's doing all the same things I'm doing. They're having a Shabbos meal, they're davening, they're, you know, and I'm sitting in their, in their presence and, and everything they're doing is like just dripping with something that I'm not capable of even describing. If you've ever been in front of a, a, great, a great person, if you've ever been in front of a, a great Torah scholar, sometimes they could literally just say, you know, the same Pasuk that you've been saying for 300 years, you know, that, that we're all saying for all these years, and they could just say, you know, and these are, this is a parsha. These, the, these are the names of B'nai Yisrael that are coming to Egypt. And all of a sudden, it's just the whole thing is filled with light. There's the first time that the Maggid of Mesrich came to the Baal Shem Tov, First time the Magad of came to the Vashem Tov, so he spent the whole Shabbos with him. And he was not from the fond ones of Hasidim from the beginning, but he was uh, melumad in Kabbalistic literature. And he came to the Vashem Tov and he saw the Vashem Tov was saying, there's different versions of the story, but he, the Vashem Tov was saying parables all Shabbos and he was hanging out with like, you know, the simple people and he was looking for like some, he was looking for a sound and light show. And, um, and the Vashem Tov wasn't really providing anything that was extraordinary. By Shal Shudah's time, the Baal Shem Tov went over to the Magad of Mezrich, and right before they sat down, he said, would you come with me into my study for a second? So they went into the study, and he said, you know, they say that you're, the Baal Shem Tov said to the Magad, they, they say that you're, you know, you're a, a person of, of tremendous, uh, you know, bikiyas in the Kabbalistic uh, literature of our people. Would, could we maybe learn something together for a few minutes before we begin the meal? So he said, sure. So he took a safer up. He said, finally, you know, we're going to get to learn something. So he took a, a book off the shelf and he put it in front of the Magid, um, Rabbi Dov Bear of Mezrich. He put it in front of him and he said, uh, would you please read this paragraph? So he started reading the paragraph. And he's reading and he's translating into the vernacular, uh, into, into Yiddish. 
And he, and he says to him, no, that's not, you didn't, that's not right. You know, and the Mahagat said, uh, okay, I'll try again. He goes back to the beginning and he reads it again. And the Bashem Tov said, no, that's, that's not correct. And the Mahagat said, well, next time I do it, will you stop me, please, when I get to a part that's not correct? Because I, I think I'm understanding what I'm saying and I think I'm reading the words, right? So the Mahagat starts a third time and he starts to read again. And as soon as he starts, the Bashem said, no, that is, no. And he's like, what the problem, the first word, what's the problem? So the Bashem said, let me show you how you do it. He took the Sefer and he looks at it and he starts saying the words. And as he's saying the words, whatever he's reading there in the Zara Kadosh, whereas the Magid was reading and translating about how this sphera is connecting with this sphera and how that's Megala, a certain or in the world, as the Baal Shem Tov is saying the words, it's happening right in front of them. You know, the, the Magid is seeing these spheros like popping out of, like, out of the book and connecting together. And he's seeing this whole, he got the sound and light show he was looking for. And the Baal Shem said, that's how you do it. In other words, there's something that a person could read the same things over and over again, or could be putting on the same tefillin, or be lighting the same Shabbos candles, giving the same tzedakah, or, be, or checking the kashras labels, or doing all the different things, but there's, the sound and light show is missing. There's something that's missing, and you can't even, until you see it, you can't even give expression to it. And that creates a, a tremendous amount of, of frustration. So Rav Cook ends here with this very, very esoteric, and I'm, I'm almost afraid to even attempt to do what we're going to try to do tonight, which is to attempt to explain it slightly, ever so slightly, to explain how the beginning of tshuva for Rav Kook, and, and in earnest, this really is the beginning of the Sefer, because everything before this was kind of like a hakdama, as we've spoken about so many times. The first three prakim are kind of Rav Kook laying out, here is the, here's like the canvas that we're going to paint on, and this is the beginning of the painting. And so for Rav Kook, he's describing here, if you just look at the last, um, the last four lines or so, the expanses of the sky that we are trying to, to launch into. We can't, we can't give expression to this thought that I'm trying, I'm here about to set out on a journey to give you all these practical aids and shuva, and there are plenty of them. But just know, says Rav Kook, that it's impossible for me to, to give you what I'd like to give you because I, I can't capture the words. There are things that I know and I'm feeling. There's a clarity of thought and a, and, a, and a burning feeling that I have that I cannot possibly, no matter how carefully I try to word this, that I can't give to you because it's literally infinite. We're doing nothing less than attempting to return all the way back to before there was anything other than Ein Sof Baruch before there was anything other than Hashem. And so for Rav Kook, Rav Kook says, since I'm literally trying to bring us back to the infinite, and it could be that I am light years literally, Oros, Hachuva, I am light years literally ahead of you in what I am feeling, it's going to be very difficult for me to express this, and you may find in your own personal journey that sometimes you'll find great, uh, you'll find great frustration in your ability to kind of articulate what exactly it is that you're aiming towards. And so he's warning us from the beginning. When that happens, says Rav Kook, all we can do is yichudim anum yachdim. When we do that, when we come to this wall of, you know, of inability to articulate, the only thing we can do is be miyached yichudim, which is explicitly Kabbalistic, you know, in, in nature. So miyached yichudim means to bring together things that uh, are these disparate parts of the Kabbalistic system, to think of divine names. That, that's what we have. That's, that's what a person can do when they come to this point. 
So here, Rav Kook, without really explaining, tells us what that kind of feels like, because none of us are Kabbalists. We don't know what he's talking about. We don't know different, you know, yeah, we know the name Yudke Vavke, we know the name Elohim, and we know there's Kel, and we know that there's a few other names, Adnus, we know these different names, we don't know what to do with them, and we shouldn't even try to, you know, we shouldn't even try to put them together until we learn how to do that. We should eventually. But, so Rav Kook says, so what do we do? We try to be mechavin and try to bring these yichudim. Then he, let's just, we're just reading the words again, and we'll try to jump in here. Nikuda. The first thing is a nikuda. What's a nikuda? Uh, a vowel or a point. A nikuda. Shemayim v'aretz chadashim umeluim atzurim sham. In a nikuda, in a patach, in a kamatz, in a shva, or really in a chirik, in a dot. That's the, the best one. In a singular dot. In that one dot, we find within that dot, Shamayim v'aretz chadashim umeluim atzurim sham. We find that trapped within that dot, within that vowelization, there is a whole new Shemaim and Aretz. What you think is Shemaim and Aretz is not what you think it is. There's a whole new way of looking at the entire heaven and the entire earth. Like Rabbi Nachman once said, Rabbi Nachman said, he said, you see this talus? He gave his talus, he, gave, he once gave his talus, he bought a new talus and he had his old talus. He gave his old talus to one of his chassidim. And he said to one of the chassidim, he said, be careful with this talus because the number of, he said, the number of tears, uh, the, excuse me, the number of strands, the number of strings that there are in this talus, in this beged, that's the number of tears that I cried to understand what is a talus? What is this, a ta- what is a talus? So you say, what is a talus? So if I ask uh, my six-year-old Akiva or even my three-year-old Yonatan, uh, I say, what's a talus? So I'll tell me what a talus is. But if you ask me what a talus is, I could give you a few sure on what a talus is. But if you ask someone who's higher than me, that it's infinite. It's all infinite. All of what is Hashem is totally infinite. He said, I cried the number of, t- the number of threads that are in this beggar to know what is a talus, on my level what a talus is, and I still haven't even scratched the surface. So be careful with this beggar because I cried a lot over this beggar to know what it is. And we run around the world and we, you know, another tefillah, another bracha, another... And Rav Kook is saying, know that within the nekudo, within the... Again, a nakudo without a letter is not a thing. That's not a, you know, it makes an E sound. But, but I have to connect it to a letter. And a letter without a nakuda, these aren't, these aren't something that a person can articulate. He said, know that in every nakuda, there is a whole world inside of there. There's shamayim v'aretz chadashim. There's new worlds that are inside of that place. Os, then a person comes to a letter, an os. V'olamim isgalim. Then... We come to the olam is misgala. Then this world, this new world, starts starts to be mitgale, starts to be revealed. Now this is again, like I told you, this is the hardest part of the whole sefer. I don't really know what he's saying. I can try. We could try together what this means. We said before that the word the olam is mitgale. That's not a good thing for the world to be revealed. That's that creates. There's a block that needs to. There's, there's shamayim va'aretz chadashim that are within this nakuda. When I attach that nakuda to a letter, I'm creating some sort of valence, I'm creating some sort of veil that blocks this tremendous light that if I would try to get it in one shot, I would just be obliterated. I can't have it. So I attach it to an os. And the os creates some distance between that which is above the os, that which is beyond the os, and, or below the os, I guess, which is, which is outside of the os. <laughs> which is not even capable, is so high 
that it's incapable, as we're going to see in a minute, it's incapable of being, when you open up a Sefer Torah in Shul, it's incapable, the os is so high, it can't even be written in the cloth. You're not, you, we're not allowed to write the os, the, the, the os you could write, the, the, the nakuda and, the, um, and the, the cantillation notes, the ta'amim, are not allowed to be written in the Torah because they're too lofty. They can't be brought down into this. We're going to read this in the Nefesh Chaim in a second. So I take this nakuda, which is so high that I, I'm not able to give expression to it. And I need to try to access it some way. So what do I do? So I, I put a letter with it. The letter acts as a veil. It's like sunglasses. So that I could look at, remember what Cook said, it's like the shemesh of tshuva. It has all these colors. So if I try to look directly at the sun, I'll be blinded. So I take an os, and then the olam is mitgaleh. There's a world. Now that world, which is mitgaleh, is something tangible that I could actually latch onto, but it's an olam, which means from a lashon of he'elam. It hides this world that's waiting to be discovered, this nakuda which is waiting to be discovered. And then I put the two of those together. I take the nakuda and the oz, and I start to put them together, and I can make a sentence. <coughs> I can start to make a sentence. And that's how he finishes. He says, then I have tevos, I have words. Urevavos olme ad v'hamon yitzurim. And from these tevos, from these combination of letters and vowels together, I start to create hamon yitzurim, myriads of, of different... Uh, Practical creations, practical things that I can do to bring about this, this, in, this impossible to articulate world that stands out there somewhere, I could start to put some block between me and it. And sometimes that block, by the way, is doing something that's not to be done. That's part of the tshuva process also, is sometimes the person, as Rav Kuk will talk about and as other tzaddikim have spoken about, that sometimes the person finds themselves doing something You say, this is not the fee TV. This doesn't make any sense. This is not... This is not, I'm a refined person. I, I work on myself. And I, and I, how did I just lose it at, at my kid? Or how did I just uh, say that thing about another, my coworker? That's totally not my nature. Because sometimes, that's what's referred to in this form as the Yerida Letzarech Aliyah, that Hashem is creating a veil between you and this infinite light, which is so great, that you are incapable of just walking right into that light. It would be dangerous for you to come in that way. And so you need to come with a bit of humility. And sometimes a person, like the Gemara says about David HaMelech, like the Gemara says about Am Yisrael when we first got the Torah, it was such a blinding light, it was so overwhelming that we immediately fell into Chira Egel. Chira Egel created a certain veil between us and the perfect receiving of the Torah so that we could slowly access it. Hashem understood that that's what was necessary. Ad Kach, that we know that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't come down when they thought he was coming down, because he was still up there with the Rabbana Shalom, right? And Moshe Rabbeinu was up there getting the Torah. Hashem didn't know what was going on down below. He couldn't have sent Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem understood that in order for them to receive what he's going to send Moshe Rabbeinu down with, the Jewish people needed an os. They needed, a, they needed something that was going to stand in between them and this tremendous light that was coming down. And then the combination of the osios and the nakudos together start to make tevos, which become practical etzos for how a person can move forward to create this new world that waits inside of this inexplicable uh, nakuda. And that's what Cook is saying, but now let's try to bring that down in a way that's like, because that's very, very difficult. Before we read the Nefshechayim, I want to show you maybe, because sometimes it's funny, sometimes when Rav Cook is, Rav Cook ostensibly is speaking prose here. This is prose, this is not poetry, this is him attempting to explain tshuva, but it reads like poetry so much so that we're kind of lost. Funny enough, Rav Kook wrote poetry, and I'm not going to read it for you in Hebrew because it would take too much time, because it's pretty long, but I'm just going to read quickly a poem that Rav Kook wrote. Um, 
which is called, in the Hebrew, it's called merchavim, merchavim, expanses, expanses, which is really what Rav Kook is describing here, these infinite expanses that are being offered to us through this modality called tshuva, which is literally an infinite regression back to the world before there was a world, back to this Ein Sof, pure light of Hashem. And so Rav Kook here as well speaks about the frustration, and I think, I hope, that hearing it in kind of like more of a poetic it will just be another angle to kind of like latch onto what Rukuk is trying to say here. The frustration of being unable to articulate that which is, which seems infinite. So here's the poem. Expanses, expanses. Expanses divine my soul craves. Confine me not in cages of substance or of spirit. My soul soars to the expanses of the heavens. Walls of the heart and walls of deed will not contain it. Morality, logic, custom. My soul soars above these above all that bears a name, above delight, above every delight and beauty, above all that is exalted and ethereal, I am lovesick. I thirst, I thirst for God as a deer for water brooks. Alas, who can describe my pain? Who will be a violin to express the songs of my grief? Who will voice my bitterness? The pain of seeking utterance. The pain of seeking utterance. The pain of being able to express what I feel in that relationship with Hashem. I thirst for truth, not for a conception of truth, not for some approximation of truth, not for words that don't quite do justice, which leave me feeling like I'm trying to say it, but I'm not saying it the right way that I want to say it. I thirst, for, I thirst for truth, not for a conception of truth, for I ride on its heights. I'm wholly absorbed by truth. I'm wholly pained by the anguish of expression. How can I utter the great truth that fills my whole heart? Who will disclose to the multitudes, to the world, to all creatures, to nations and individuals alike, the spark abounding in treasures of light and warmth stored within my soul? I see the flames rise upward, piercing the heavens, but who feels, who can express their might? I am not like one of those heroes who have found whole worlds in their inwardness. Neither the world knew of their wealth or not. It was all the same to them. Meaning I'm not like a person who can just maintain whatever is inside of me inarticulated. I I feel a need to try. I'm not like one of these heroes who just leave all of that wealth inside of themselves. Whether the world knew of their wealth or not, it was all the same to them. That's not like, I, I feel a need to express this. And yet I'm having trouble doing it. These herds of sheep walking on two feet, of what use was it if they knew man's true height? And what loss is there not knowing? I am bound to the world. So he's saying there were some people who were like, okay, the the people who are basically herds of sheep, they just happen to have two legs. I have, I'm I'm with Hashem and I can't, that's not me. I can't do that. I am bound to the world. All creatures, all people are my friends. Many parts of my soul are intertwined with them. But how can I share with them my light? Whatever I say only covers my vision, dulls my light. Great is my pain and great is my anguish. Oh my God, my God, be a help in my trouble. Find for me the graces of expression. Grant me language and gift of utterance. I shall declare before the multitudes my fragments of your truth. Oh my God. So that's a tefillah that Rav Kook is saying, which really animates this paragraph. He's saying I, there's an infinite level of tshuva that there's just no way for me to share with you. And this is the opening paragraph of my book. But I'm going to try, nevertheless, to give you what I can. And here he's davening, and this is me also davening, and what we're about to learn from the Nefesh and like I said last week, from the student of the Ramchal, of Moshe David Vali, that these two things together should help us a little bit to understand what it is that Rav Kook is trying to, to say to us. Because on a certain level, all of life, all of life is an attempt to, and we spoke about this very practically last week at the, at the very end, for, just for a moment, any person who is suffering from some anguish of the heart, some emotional distress, whether because something was done to them or because of the way that they were born, some proclivity of birth, 
someone who feels anguish of the heart. So the best, uh, the, the, the closest thing to some sort of cure that we have nowadays is not, uh, is not only or is not necessarily uh, pharmaceuticals, but is talk therapy. It's talking it out. It's being able to express, to being able to name what exactly is the problem. And to be able to express one's feelings is the, and, and it sometimes takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of, of therapy, of talking to somebody, of a good friend or talking to a professional, until you could finally express and make a breakthrough to describe what it is that's eating at you. And once you're able to give expression to that, you could start to manipulate your reality because the words themselves begin to heal you. And the ability to, to articulate the ideal is the first step towards being able to move towards it. And so until a person is able to actually express this thing, it remains in the realm of, of thought. So let's take a look at a, a, a somewhat celebrated passage from the Nefshachayim. We're not going to read all of it because some of it is, um, is above our pay grade for this evening. This is found in Sharbez, Perak Tezayin. And here, Rav Chaim Lajner is talking about the experience of tefillah and is trying to shake us from our sleep. In Sharbez, the entire thing is about tefillah. And here, he wants us to realize that when you're davening, when you're saying words in tefillah, when you open a sitter and you're saying these words, you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> you're like playing with nuclear materials. And so he says the following. Okay, um, don't be afraid. I will, I, will, I will help you. Okay, I will help you. But at first he's going to be saying things. Don't, don't get thrown off by the fact that he's using words that sound really spiritual. Because he's going to tie them all to like very concrete things. We know that the soul, the human soul, and this is found in Chazal, this is found in the Medrash Rabbah, in Bereshis Rabbah, towards the very beginning. The soul is comprised of three different parts, or three different expressions. Vehem Naran. And these three parts, these three expressions, are referred to by the acronym Naran. Naran stands for Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. Now, Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama means the, just very briefly for a second, because he's not going to share this with us, in basic, basic Pnimi Sator and Chasidus and in Kabbalah, so Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama correspond roughly to this area, the gut, this area, the Ruach, this is the Nefesh, this is the Ruach, and the Neshama is up here. Okay, so basically the nefesh corresponds to, let's say, the liver, which is the place where the blood gets cleaned, kiadam hua nefesh. The ruach corresponds to the heart, which is considered the seat of emotions. It's, we know when the heart is beating or when the heart feels, the seat of emotions, and also breathing, right, the lungs, and that's considered like where the, the, the emotions are, and the intellect, the brain, the mind. Okay, so, so roughly the nefesh is associated with dam, with blood, with the circulation of the blood, the circulatory system, which is, by the way, uh, what it means when, if you ever heard somebody say, you know, when you go to sleep, so your neshama goes up to shamayim, and then you get it back the next day, and that's why you have to wash your hands, and you've heard something like this, and you say, so I die, I'm not dead, I walk into my kid's room, they're breathing, thank God. That's because their nefesh is still there, their circulatory system is still working, and their, their, their breathing is still having, their nefesh is there, their ruach is maybe in a dream state, and their neshama has gone completely, has completely, their consciousness, their intellect has completely left 
And that's why in a dream state, you don't dream uh, about logical things. You have all these crazy, you know, these crazy dreams. Because the, the, however, sleep is also, this will be helpful as well. When you wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes every once in a while, and all of a sudden you're like, uh-oh, and you slap your arm and it's like, where did it go? What happened to my arm? It's like gone. It disappeared. And I look at it and I have this funny kind of dance that I do. And then like three seconds later, it starts to come back. What happened? Well, the blood got cut off from my arm because I was sleeping on, on my arm or something silly like that. And so since the blood circulation got cut off from my arm, it lost the power of movement. And so the nefesh is most associated with movement, as we're going to see in a second. So we know that there's the nefesh, the ruach, and the neshama. There's movement. That's my ability to move. Then there's my emotions, which is, we'll see in a moment, is roughly related to speech. And then there's my intellect, which is, the, which is thought. So we put the three of those together and we have thought, speech, and actions, which corresponds to the neshama, the ruach, which is when I speak, I literally, ruach comes out, and the nefesh, which is my ability to, to move, ki adam hua nefesh, when there's blood circulating through the body, I have the power of movement. Where are all these from, by the way? Like Kabbalah? Kabbalistic. So this idea is found already in the Medrash Rabbah, in the Bereshus Rabbah, which is part of the exoteric tradition. Um, the Nefesh Chaim, um, the Nefesh Chaim, it will take more than, than a, a minute to answer that question. So I, I'll... I'll you answered enough for me. Like well, this particular idea is found in the, in, in, in the Bereshus Rabbah, but the explanation of how these things is, is something which is found in the same way that, let's say it says, um, it says in the Torah, they should be as tefillin between your eyes. Yes? So uh, how do we know they're black boxes and that there's a shin on it and that seven times around the arm? And all. So this is all Rav Muslim in the Psukim and traditions and different things that kind of explicate the, the basics. The basics are found already in the exoteric literature, but the esoteric comes and like brings it out a little bit. So he says this explicitly, Shehim Atzmum, this Naran, are the Gimel Bechinos of Maaseh, Dibor Umachshava. These naran, this nefesh ruach and neshama, correspond to actions, speech, and thought. Shezek kola adam. And that, that's really all a person is. A person is a sum total of their thought, speech, and action. Now, just like a person expresses themselves in the world through thought, speech, and action, and of course, speech is kind of an intermediary between action and thought, the world of thought is very hard to control, eh? And B, when I try to express something in thought that I have up here in speech, all of a sudden I need to move my... When I'm thinking, I could just sit here like this and not move anything, and yet I am thinking. When I want to speak, it's kind of like a thought. When you think about it, the more you think about speech, it's the weirder it is. I'm making these sounds with my mouth, and you're somehow hearing them, and they're making sense to you in your brain. And I'm moving my mouth to do it. But it's not quite an action, it's, it's a, I'm expressing a thought in action. So it's kind of this in-between state of thought and action. There's speech. So just like a human being has this in-between state, there's something called thought and there's something action and speech kind of unifies them. So, so too in the world of making a teva, making words. And there is no question in my mind that Rav Kook, first of all, was familiar with this passage in Nefshachayim, and is certainly referencing it here. When a person wants to make a teva, wants to make a word, he needs a few different things. Gimel bechinos. 
He needs a masa, a dibor, and a machshava, naran. Vehem osios, nekudos, v'ta'amim shava. You need the osios, you need the, the letter itself, which is like the guf, that's like the body. You need the nekuda, which breathes some possibility of speech into it. And you need the ta'amim, which creates maybe like a feeling to it, you know, gives it like its, uh, its song, brings it to life. Like it says in the beginning of the Tikkun Ezawar, and he says, this is not my, I'm not making this up, says, says Rav Chaim Velazhner, this is not my uh, invented idea, but in the Tikkun Ezawar it says, the cantillation notes of the Torah, this is the Neshama, the Nekudos, that's the Ruach, and Asvin, and the letters, Nafshin, that's the Nefesh. So what he's basically done for us here is he said, I'm going to make for you uh, three, three kind of uh, columns in a chart. In one of them you have nefesh, maisa, os, going across. Then you have ruach, dibor, speech, nikuda. And in the third one you have neshama, machshava, and ta'amim. And so for Chaim Velazhner, what he's going to describe is that when a person wants to articulate a thought, what they need to do is they need to take an os. The os is dead. Can one articulate the letter bays without a, a, a sound inside of it? It's, it's just, it's dead. It's a guf. It's the veil, like we were saying before, it's a guf without, without nakudos is like, you know, it's not alive. It's the, it can't, can't, without nakudos and tamim, it, it can't do very much. It's just a dead guf. So what does Hashem do? He takes a neshama. He takes this nekuda. He takes this point of, 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 of nishmas elokim. And he puts it inside of an os, inside of a body. And he says, with that veil, you are now going to be able to navigate the world without being overwhelmed by my presence and slowly to put together the nekudos and the osios in order to have actions, speech, and thoughts that will slowly give you the possibility of returning to a state where maybe you will slightly be able to experience and appreciate the fact that you are an evolving being moving ever closer back to, to this infinite light of Hashem where you came from. He puts the nefesh inside. And the guf and the nefesh together. He takes the neshama, which is the ta'amim, and he takes the nekudos, and he puts it inside of the os. Inside of, again, the nefesh, right? The nefesh means the... Animals also have a nefesh. There's nothing human particularly about a nefesh. A nefesh, an animal itself also is able to move around and it does, what's, you know, it does what, what comes naturally to it. So Hashem takes this neshama elokis and he puts it inside. The nefesh is the closest thing that's most close to the body itself. What it's still spiritual. Life, life still? What would the English word be to... For nefesh? Yeah. So, so there's not good English words. Normally, if you, in an English book, so they'll translate neshama as the soul. Mm-hmm. They'll translate the ruach as the spirit. Right. And they'll translate the nefesh as v- the vitality of, the vi- of like your, your vital life source. In other words, that which makes you, keeps you alive, basically. Whatever that spark that causes your heart to continue to beat over and over again, whatever that mysterious electrical impulse is, is the nefesh. So the combination of those three things together creates enough of a balance of, on the one hand, this inarticulatable uh, or of a nakuda, and it blocks it with a letter, and the two of those together start to make a sound. 
And then together with that, you can create a teva. And with that teva, you could start to move in the direction of attempting to articulate, what is this? Who am I? How did I come here? As all the philosophers talk about, the experience of being born eventually at some point, whether it's when you're, you know, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, or when you're at some point, all of a sudden you start to ask yourself the question of like, what is this place? Like, where am I? And then you start to ask questions and you start to push further and you start to strip away the layers. And slowly you start to realize that I, there's an akuda inside of this os that I haven't been articulating, but once I put the two of those together, I could start to express where I'm headed and then I start to actually go there. And in fact, that's what I would say, most of what I experience as a teacher for you know, 18 year olds, 18, 19 year olds who come to Eretz Yisrael for the year to come study, most of what they're doing is they're just trying to articulate where they're headed. And then it takes another 20 years for them to head in that direction. But they're, they're just trying to articulate like, what are my values? What are my goals? And when you start to ask those questions and you start to look in the svarim and they start to give you a way of expressing that, so then you have what to head towards. And so the second thing that I wanted to look at, just for we'll come back to the Nefshchayim in a moment, is from the student of the Ramchal, uh, Rav Moshe David Vali. Rav Moshe David Vali um, was an amazing, amazing thinker. It's the Sefer, that's the Sefer Halikutim. He was an amazing, amazing thinker. And he wrote about everything under the sun. He has so many volumes, it's hard to even know where exactly to begin. Rabbi Moshe David Vali. He's sometimes called the Ramdu, which is his Rosh Hashanah. Like his, his collected works, which would probably take up... Vali, um, Vav Vav Aleph Lamed Yud, Vali. Um, he's buried in Padua in Italy, um, which is where the Ramchal was hanging out also in Italy. And he's written enough books to fill at least two column, you know, two, uh, two shelves over there. And so he has on, on, uh, on all of Tanakh and on several other kind of like random topics. And he has a, two, two volumes called Sefer Likutin which I've, I've, I've gone through and I have... What time period is it from? The Ramchal is, is shortly before the Vilna Gon, is like the 15, 1600s. Yeah, I know the Ramchal, but he's, the he's a student. He, he, he learned under the Ramchal. He learned under the Ramchal. So, um, okay. So he says something, which I'm going to try to say a little outside, and then I'm going to say inside. And then we'll try to put these things together, and hopefully we'll be able to... Oh, we have a question coming in from the crowd. Hold on a second. By extension, does everything you're saying about nefesh, ruach, and neshama apply to non-Jews as well? Non-Jews also have a nefesh, ruach, and neshama. In the beginning of the Sefer Tanya, David, in the beginning of the Sefer Tanya, the Baal Tanya describes any core differences between the nefesh, ruach, and neshama of Jews and non-Jews. And by definition, and this is also found in the Sefer Tanya, every non, and this is probably the most important thing for when we're, especially when you get into the world of the Maharal and the Shla, and you start to learn Svarim that talk about the essential qualities of the Jewish soul, and it starts to rub you a little bit sensitively if you're a person of the world, if you're a worldly person. So it's always important to understand that every non-Jew is a potential Jew. If all they, they don't have to have blonde hair and blue eyes to become Jewish. They just have to want to be Jewish, and then they do it. There's no, there's not, there's no defect of birth. They just, they weren't born into it automatically, but if they choose to, they're a 
potential Jews. So anything that we would ever say, which we're not going to, but anything we would ever describe about the difference, the fundamental difference between a Jewish nefesh ruach and a and a non-Jewish nefesh ruach and a is only a matter of if a person wants, and, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with having a nefesh ruach and of a non-Jew if you're a non-Jew. That's totally fine. And you can come to Olam Haba and you can attain certain levels of, of, of divine approximation. But there's something special about being a Jew. And if a person wants to sign up for that, they're welcome to sign up for that. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to do. I'm happy I was born not having to choose it. Um, but we have to choose it in other ways. So it's a good question. But yes, they have Nefesh Ruch Neshama, but it's uh, fundamentally different than, than Jewish Nefesh Ruch Neshama. So I'm going to try to describe now what Rav Moshe Davali says, and then we'll read it uh, inside. And he has an unbelievable chiddush. Okay, if what we're saying is true, just to summarize what we've said so far, if what we're trying to say is that there is a certain inexplicable, inarticulatable, beautiful, perfect reality out there, which is so intense that it's like staring directly into the sun and it would be too much for us. And therefore, Rav Kook says, we're miyachi di yichudim of osios and nekudos, which means... Revelation, the nekudos, that's the neshama, and the, and the osios themselves, which kind of block that light just enough that we can start to articulate it and perhaps move towards it. That's what we've said so far. So it stands to reason, says Rav Moshe David Vali, that when we look at the Hebrew language, so Hebrew words, it's a big machlokas rishonim, but Hebrew words are made up of two or three letters show Russian. Two or three letters show Russian. So he says, let's, for argument's sake, say three-letter Shorashim. Every, every, you could conjugate it using different uh, masculine or feminine or different tenses of past, present, and future. But every word is basically three letters that create this, uh, this or that symbolize this thing that we're trying to talk about. So comes along with Moshe Davali and he says, if you look at three-letter combinations... Let's take, for example, this is the example he's going to give at first. Let's take the letters Ches, Mem, and Shin. Ches, Mem, and Shin. Now, let's try to put those together. So Ches, Mem, and Shin. Recognize that word? Chamesh. Okay, that's, that's, or, 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 or maybe perhaps it could also relate to the word uh, like Chamushim, like being uh, armed. But we recognize, that's a, there's a few words that are, we're capable of making there. What about the letter Shin Memches, or Sin Memches. Same letter, different Nakuda. Sameach, recognize it. Okay, what about Memches Shin? By the way, if you want to know very quickly, sorry to bring you into this space of mathematics so late at night, but if you want to know very quickly how many combinations you can make out of a three-letter combination, you just do one times two times three. You take the number of variables, you multiply them by each other, there are six combinations. One times two is two, two times three is six. Okay, so there's six combinations. So we're, we're now in the third combination. So we did Sameach, we did Chamesh, now, the next one is Mem Ches Shin. What about that? I'm sorry, Mem Shin Ches. Mashach or Mashuach, which means to anoint, right? Mashiach. Or it comes from that Mashiach is an, the anointed one, so that comes from a lashon of, right? Mashiach, the Shoresh of, of, of Mashiach is Mem, uh, Mem Shin Ches. Okay? Now, says Moshe Davali, what about if we try to do, let's see, I don't want to start guessing here. Is what about, um, oh, how about this one? Shin Chesmem. Shechem. 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 Shechem is with a chaf. It's with a chaf. This is Shechem with a chet? With a chet. Anybody? Um, like from the word, like to brown something. 
Maybe. Look at that. I don't know enough to say. What about Ches Shin Mem? Chasham. So now. Chushim is from Chush, which is Ches Vav Shin, is the Shoresh. Right? So, and probably I would say that if, if what was the word you said? Shacham. If Shacham means to brown something, it comes from the Shoresh of the word Chom, which is Ches Vav Mem. That's the Shoresh there. So comes of Moshe Valley and he says, when you do this, okay, maybe here we're being clever, but if you do this with every three-letter combination, you're going to come to certain words that are gobbledygook. They don't mean anything in our, they don't mean anything in our, in our current uh, lexicon. So why, what would we say, as regular human beings who aren't Rav Moshe Davidvali, what would we say? It's unbelievable. We would say they don't exist. These are not words. Okay. But Rav Moshe says they can't not exist. They're... Os, they're, they're the osios that Hashem used to create the world. These are the letters of creation. This is, so he says, you know what we have to say? We have to say that these words are lost. And part of the experience of exile, part of the experience of exile is we don't know how to say we've lost part of Lashon Kodesh. We've lost the ability to articulate properly. And all of the pain that we experience in exile is not so much the suffering itself, but the inability to articulate how to manage that suffering. Or, said differently, exile itself is the inability to express those ideals which somehow got lost. We have some of the words, but we've lost some of these words along the way in the exile. And so what the redemption from exile is, (coughs) is it happens through articulation. When we're able to retrieve those words that got lost, then we could start to express these ideas that got lost because, I, because the language itself expresses the culture and, the, and the, all the notions of that particular peoples. And so the Jewish people, by dint of the fact that we don't have some of these combinations, some of these tzirufim, it means that there's something that got lost from the Jewish tradition. All of those things that got lost are things that went into exile and we need to retrieve them. Part of Going into exile is retrieving those ideas and retrieving that language that got lost. And so when Rav Cook says here at the end of the first teaching here, which we're, we're, which we're trying to, to make our way through, when Rav Cook says that tshuva is about being able to articulate that which we can't articulate, what he means is that part of the redemption, part of the process of redemption is taking those words and concepts that got lost along the way and explaining them. That's... Like we, we can all relate to this on the level of when a child is starting to mature and we can start to express things in a way that they couldn't have understood when they were children, it helps them to navigate the world in a way that they couldn't when they were children, they couldn't handle when they were children, so we kind of protect them. As they start to go out into the world, we start to give them new language and we start to teach them new words and new concepts that they can use to navigate the world. Where all of us, all of us are fundamentally lacking a certain language which would help us to mature to compared to where we are now, we would look at ourselves as we are spiritually on the level of children compared to where we could be if we had access to this language. And by the way, this is the reason that we will occasionally find an unbelievable thing. And this we're going to start to move towards the close. I didn't read it inside, but I'm sensitive to the time. So read it inside. There's two paragraphs here on page Kuf, I and Tess, where he says, Kol HaTzirufim Yeshlam Mashmaos. Every Tziruf has a meaning. We just lost the meaning. 
right? Every tziruf, which means every combination of the letters, has a meaning, but we lost the combinations, so therefore we're fundamentally lacking. He says in the redemption is getting those tzirufim back. And also on page Kufpei, he has another, chashivas lashon kodesh kol tziruf mashmos. Look at those two paragraphs over there, and you'll see what I just said um, in his language, which is uh, more articulate. So um, it's for this reason, and now we'll start to move towards the end, and then maybe we'll just read those last three lines one more time, and hopefully it'll ring a little bit less esoteric now that we've read the Nefshechaim and Rav Moshe David Vali, uh, which, again, Rav Kook knew them both, for sure, no question. So um, this is why we find, for example, the... Gemara in the Yerushalmi, in Maseches Rosh Hashanah, that says that when the Jewish people came out of Bavel, this is a remarkable thing, in light of this, maybe you've heard this before, but now you'll hear it in a new way. When the Jewish people came out of Bavel, the names of the months that we have, Nisan, Ir, Sivan, Tammuz, Avel, those are not Hebrew words. In the Torah, it's Rosh Chadashim, it's the second month, it's the third month. We have a few names for months, like Ir is called Ziv, Tammuz is called Bul. We have these different, uh, these different names for, uh, for the months in Hebrew, but these names, Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz, these are, these are Aramaic names. These are, not, these are not Hebrew names. The Yerushalmi says in Mesech Hashanah that when the Jewish people came out of Bavel, Alu Mi Bavel, when they came out of Bavel, they brought together with them the names of these months. So on the surface, what does that mean? It, it sounds like we assimilated or something like that. That's what it sounds like on the surface. Like we, we lost the, the biblical you know, names for the months and we... We got them from Bavel. We took them out of Bavel, right? What it could mean, and I would not be the first to suggest this, the Ramban suggests this and others suggest it as well, is that somewhere along the way, the Torah is not providing us, whether it's a function of the Chet HaEgel or something else after that, the names, the proper names of the months, they went into exile. And so we only call them the first month, the second month, the third month, but we don't have the right names. And so much of the Sfarim, so much of the Sifrei Pnimi Satora, like the, the Bnei Saschar and other Sfarim, are trying to explicate from the names of the months and from these aspects of the months, which went into exile. Now we have these names, Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, these, these different names, and they start to explain what does this name mean and how does that orient me towards how I'm supposed to, to comport myself in that particular month. So that came out of bubble. It means that we retrieved it from exile. I'll give you another example. This is from a, this is from a Rishon already, okay? The Rashba, the Rashba had a student named Rabbi Yoshua Ibn Shawib. That's what his name. Rabbi Yoshua Ibn Shawib. So he writes, the Shlach Kodesh writes the same thing. Maybe you've heard this before also. Anyone know, I mentioned the Pasuk before. Anyone know what the word Totafot means? Totafot is tefillin. What, what does Totafot mean? Anyone remember this Rashi, this funny Rashi? Maybe you learned it in, in elementary school. Totafot Says Rashi, this will blow your mind. Rashi says it. It's uh, two, two parshas from now, parshas Bo. Rashi says, Totafot is actually, the word tot is Coptic, which is some is a foreign language, is Coptic for two. Totafot, tot means two in Coptic, and fot in Afriki, in some African language, also means two. So Totafot means tot ufot. Two and two, for a total of four. The four partios that are in the tefillin. That's what Rashi writes. That's what tefillin is. It's it's African and like what? It's in the like. Why is this foreign language in the Torah? When did we get the mitzvah of tefillin? When we're coming out of Egypt. So says the Talmud of the Rashba. 
when the Jewish people are being redeemed from Egypt, what did we take with us? See, all of the world spoke Lashon HaKodesh in the beginning. But then by Migdal Bava, what happened? Things got spread all over the place and all these different languages happened. Well, along the way, we lost certain words in Lashon HaKodesh. And the word tot and fot are not Coptic and Afriki. They're Hebrew words. But we lost that combination of those words. We lost it somewhere along the way. And when we come out of Egypt, when we are redeemed from Egypt, we take with us certain aspects of language that we didn't have before. There's a certain relationship with Hashem that we weren't able to express before, that we're now able to express. And so we take those words out with us. And when we leave Bavel, we take certain words out with us. And when we leave uh, America or England or South Africa or we leave wherever we came from, we take certain words with us. And those words, we don't know what words are suffused with that or of Lashon HaKodesh. We don't know exactly how. But there's something that's described in the Nevi'im as chemdas kol ha'goyim. The, 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 the chemda, that beautiful thing which is trapped in each of the nations of the world when a Jew comes back to Eretz Yisrael with their unique culture and their unique uh, baggage. Letov v'lemutav. And they bring that back to Eretz Yisrael. That's a redempt- there's a redemption that's taking place there of language, of, of, of a way of, of working within the world. And so Rav Cook is saying that part of the tshuva process is literally taking that language and putting it back into our lives so that we can then aim at these higher states of existence. I'm not going to get into it right now, but the notion of tot and fot, what, what are the parshos and tefillin all about? It's about the oneness of Hashem. Shema Yisrael Hashem Okino Hashem Echad. These other languages... Tot and Fot, two and two, is basically saying that these other nations, they actually were, they, they, they believed in Hashem, they believed in a one God that had some subordinate God. They believed in this system where there was the prime, Rabboni Shalom, and then there's this lower manifestation, there's this lower thing which is subordinate to Hashem. So it's kind of like a two-tiered system, it's called, what's called Shituf. For a non-Jew, that's permissible actually. Right? That's part of the debate about whether Christianity is considered a Vodazar or not. Most posts can say it's not because they believe in a supreme God and they just believe in a subordinate to that. Different versions. So these particular nations were not like the paganistic religions of the, of the, of the, um, of the ancient Near East that believed in like a plethora of gods, but they believed that there was the creator of the world and they believed in their own little God. So that already, we take those religions that were closer to this notion of monotheism, and we take them and we put them into our tefillin, which actually brings it closer to that place of monotheism. We can't go all the way out and bring someone who believes in 70 gods. That's not going to work. But we can take someone who believes in two and bring it ever closer. And so the goal for Rav Kook here, and we'll close with this, the goal for Rav Kook here is that when we don't know exactly how to express, we have to believe that there's some combination of osios and nekudos that are coming together, of a light which is inexplicable, with an os which blocks it just enough and sometimes that comes through chait. Chait itself is that thing that blocks me from being able to then, and that's, by the way, unbelievable. Then really, really end. Chait. What is chait? I never understood this before until the second. Chait is ches, tes, aleph. So the Baal Shem Tov said that ches and tes are the real letters of chait. You don't pronounce the aleph. Aleph, it's an aleph without a vowel. That's what it is. A chait is an aleph that's it's not even pronounced. Chait. If you drop the aleph off the word, it doesn't even make, it doesn't change the, it's, it's the same word, right? Mm-hmm. Drop the aleph off, it makes it chet. Chet is a ches with a, with a, uh, with a tzeri under it, and a, 
and a, and a test. So you don't need dollars. But every chayt that a person does, actually, in her of Cook's world, this is what we're going to go into, every chayt that a person does creates a distance between him and Hashem, or her and Hashem, that then creates the possibility of now expressing something, that's the whole notion of because by dint of the fact that they created this sunglasses between them and the or of Hashem, they can now start to articulate something that they weren't able to articulate before. Sometimes a person does a chit, that's a very, very bad thing. But sometimes, like we were saying before, David HaMelech, Chire Egel, there are chatam that are beyond what we really are capable, should be doing, that Hashem is bringing to our lives in order to help us to articulate something that we wouldn't be able to articulate otherwise. So what do we do? We're mechavin, these yichudim of nekuda, shamayim v'arts chadashim v'aleim, otsrim sham, os, olamim nesgalim, tevos, v'revavos, olamim ad, v'hamun yitzurim, shalu v'alaz, we start to feel the tranquility and the strength of the God of all gods. And the soul continues to go forward, marching forward, and fixes herself. This is the most difficult paragraph in the entire Sefer. Next week, we'll move on to Ozbez, where things will start to become much, 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 much easier.